You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. What was it now? Just a few days ago, former President Barack Obama was mocking Republicans. Oh, critical race theory, as if that's the biggest issue in America right now. Well, there are other big issues, and no one's saying that CRT is the biggest, but it is something that people are waking up to now as it has infiltrated so many institutions, the academy, high schools, colleges, corporations. And this is one of the left's means of establishing cultural and therefore political control. And finally, people are hitting back against this idea. They're saying enough is enough. And no surprise, the left is upset about that. We'll get to this in a second. Also, ransomware these days, as you know, is a huge problem. And there's just a story today in the Daily Mail about a massive hack of Amazon, Gmail accounts, all kinds of your most sensitive information. Do you want to just trust this stuff to big tech corporations that aren't liable to you? If they lose your data, there's a problem. It's it's too bad. You need to start taking action now yourself to protect your most sensitive information. That's why you need secure. All right. S-E-K-U-R. It's the 100% privacy and security-focused instant messaging and email platform located in Switzerland. That's the country where the world's strictest data privacy laws are applied. Secure, S-E-K-U-R, is held by privacy advocates globally in the assurance that their data is kept truly safe by proprietary technology, independent platform, and military-grade encryption methods. Your data is yours alone. Secure does not data mine, use, or sell your data. Experience the bliss of knowing that your privacy is not in jeopardy from the prying hands of big tech and that you have a greater degree of security than people who are getting their stuff hacked these days. Go with Secure. S-E-K-U-R dot com. Use the coupon code BUCK for one week free and 25% off. Be sure to use that coupon code BUCK when you go to secure, S-E-K-U-R dot com, regain your privacy, protect yourself online. What is the purpose of critical race theory? Why is it making such a comeback right now? You can go to the, the early days of political correctness, the 1980s, the 1990s, and there was critical race theory then. But why is it ascendant at this moment? Well, as you know, Our country has an increasingly brazen Marxist faction in the Democrat Party. And what they've decided is that class warfare in a country that is as as wealthy as ours is not necessarily going to be that effective. I mean, they're still doing it. Don't get me wrong. That's what the leak of the tax records recently of some of the richest Americans was all about to to create that class warfare feeling among people so Democrats can address it so multimillionaire democrats can pretend they're going to make your life better by taxing people who are still trying to build wealth more and pretend that they're actually taxing billionaires which is not going to happen they won't do that democrats love billionaires they're funded by billionaires they control the institutions places like amazon and google and and you know major corporations Democrats have no problem with extreme wealth. They have problem with extreme wealth that they do not control. But a way to get even deeper into American society and a way to divide us more effectively 
is critical race theory, racial Marxism, right? That we are a society where there are benefits. There are benefits, not in, not as a function of law, although they're the only racial benefits in law go to certain, not all, certain non-white minorities, as you know, through affirmative action. Uh, but there's no actual codified white privilege as, as a matter of law, but they'll they'll still say that we live in a society due to intersectionality, the belief that we are all in a uh, in a hierarchy of oppression, not just along racial, but also ethnic, religious, gender, lots of different categorizations. And we're all dealing with either being oppressors or being oppressed. This is a great way to control people, isn't it? And this is also undermining some of the very core beliefs of the American system, which is the rights of the individual, that we are all treated equally in the eyes of the law. No, they're even replacing equality with equity. You, you would have thought that equality, this is America, right? All men are created equal. This is supposed to be one of our, our most important beliefs, our most important maxims. And now it's really, well, all men are created. Well, first of all, it's not all just men. It's all men, women, and whatever else somebody identifies as are created equitable or with equity or whatever have to end up with equity. That's, I guess, the way you'd have to put it. Have to end up in a place of equity. They're replacing equality as a concept in that way. And I have to tell you, this is very troubling. Uh, this is very troubling. This is something that will, if it's allowed to continue on, pull this country further apart. And, I mean, ultimately, an, a nation is, is about philosophy, is about psychological bonds with your, your fellow members of that, of that entity. You know, it, it's a concept. Right? I mean, there's, there's not something that is America that's a, a piece of property. Yes, we have borders, or at least we're supposed to, uh, but we form this. This is, this is based on belief. And when they start to chip away at some of the foundational beliefs of what this country is and what it's all about, then they're in a position to, one, of course, have a lot more power. The left can remake society in its image. And they also are in, in a place where they can always go on offense against their political opponents. You're starting to see what I call a counter-revolution. Right? This was, if you were in the, in the Soviet era, to be a counter-revolutionary was the worst. That was the worst epithet. It was, like being, it was like being called a traitor. What do you mean you're standing against the revolution? The entire rationale for the existence of the Soviet state was the revolution. Um, and, and so when, once you see what this really means for us now, once you understand... Uh, why this is such an important concept, I want to encourage as many people as possible in this country to view themselves as counter-revolutionaries against the left, right? We want to be counter-revolutionaries. They're the ones that are saying, the left claims they want to transform this country. I want to preserve, and where possible, perfect, but I just want to preserve America because this is a unique and amazing place for all of its flaws, for all of its historical shortcomings and present ones. 
They want a fundamental transformation, to borrow from Barack Obama, which is now continued by Joe Biden, a fundamental transformation of American society. I say we stop them and do everything we can within the system we have to stop them. Critical race theory is just one of the primary tools they are using now in their leftist cultural revolution. Right. So there's the cultural revolution, which we talked a little about yesterday and the the Maoist approach in America of the struggle sessions. Oh, my gosh, we all have to talk about racism so much. Oh, we have all these all these economically privileged white liberals who just want to walk around crying about how they're so worried about racism, but they don't actually do anything. Doesn't actually change anything in their lives, but they just want to make a big show of how much they care about racism, as you know. Um, But we're starting to see now that the left is finding the outer limits of what it can get away with it, get away with without Americans saying, hold on a second. That's actually not okay. This is getting beyond just electoral back and forth politics and and the warring propaganda machines of news media. This this is something more core and fundamental. Here is the secretary of defense. Yes, he's uh, African-American Lloyd Austin. Here is the secretary of defense speaking about critical race theory. Play 20. The military has included the works of critical race theories on its reading list by authors like Abraham Henry Rogers, who now calls himself Abraham Kendi, and Robin D'Angelo. Mr. Kendi has written, quote, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination, end quote. Do you agree with that proposition? Uh, I've not read that, and I, I don't, you know, I certainly don't agree with what you just said, but I, okay, you know, Mr. Secretary, it, it's always important my- to have the con- full context of anything that's, uh, that you're being asked to evaluate. Mr. Secretary, do you believe that race and sex should be the key factor when selecting combat leaders rather than, say, operational excellence, technical proficiency, leadership, agility, and integrity? I I do not, uh, Senator. I I think what you just said should be key components in making any, any selection. Okay, so that's a start, right? This is good. The Secretary of Defense is saying that being the best at the job should be the most important thing in the military. I mean, we're starting there. Let, let's go back to professions where we all know lives are at stake, where we all understand what the risks are of being less than the most effective we could possibly be, either as a, as a group in the case of the military or as individuals. And the Secretary of Defense is saying, okay, it is true. The most important things out there are being good at the job. You could say meritocracy is still something that we have to consider. Meritocracy is still very real. And that's good. How much do considerations of diversity and inclusion, though, still affect our military? Well, that's what we have to continue to look at. We have to continue to have that discussion. Here is... So that's just... The, that's the Secretary of Defense... Uh, general or former general Lord Lloyd Austin, and he's he's at least admitting that the best the best people in the military at the job should get the jobs, irrespective of race, gender, or anything else. Well, that's going to mean that it's going to be really hard for women to qualify for certain uh, infantry and and forward deployed combat roles. 
based on the physical requirements necessary. There'll be very, very, very few. And we should not lower standards. And, and what the left will do is they'll play games, say, oh, we're not lowering standards. Why are you so sexist? And then no women will pass the standards or maybe, you know, one in a thousand will pass the standards to be, you know, a Navy SEAL or to be a, an operator with Delta or whatever it may be. And then they'll say, OK, well, don't be a sexist. We've got to change the standards a little bit because this is what equality means. No, we have to hold the line. Here is a mom, a, a, a black mother in Florida. So this is now not some big, uh, important member of the administration. This is just an everyday mom in Florida, right? This is not some cabinet official. But she's saying this is her view of critical race theory, and she's an African-American woman, play 19. Just coming off of May 31st, marking the 100 years of the Tulsa riots, it is sad that we are even contemplating something like critical race theory, where children will be separated by their skin color and deemed permanently oppressors or oppressed in 2021. That is not teaching the truth, unless you believe that whites are better than blacks. I have personally heard teachers teaching CRT, and we have had an assembly shut down because Duval County Public School System consultant thought it would be a great idea to separate students by race. This is unacceptable. CRT is not racial sensitivity or simply teaching unfavorable American history or teaching Jim Crow history. CRT is deeper and more dangerous than that. CRT and its outworking today is a teaching that there is a hierarchy in society where white, male, heterosexual, able-bodied people are deemed the oppressor and anyone else outside of that uh, status is oppressed. That's why we see corporations like Coca-Cola asking their employees to be less white, which is ridiculous. I don't know about you, but telling my child or any child that they are in a permanent oppressed uh, status in America because they are black is racist. And saying that white people are automatically above me, my children, or any child is racist as well. She's speaking so much truth. And you get the sense when you hear a, a, this is a, a black mom down in Florida um, speaking with this kind of passion and clarity on the issue. The counter-revolution is underway, friends. Now it's just a question of whether our side, the side of truth, the side of a society that believes that a person's skin color does not matter about their, their, their character, about their intelligence, their ability, anything else, the side that believes that race is superficial and irrelevant to our judgments, our thoughts, our beliefs about our fellow human beings, are we going to win this debate in America today? That's what remains to be seen. What about actual solutions to problems of inequality of opportunity? What about making sure that everyone does get a chance? Not equity, that's the same ends, that's the same result, that's the end of meritocracy, the destruction of meritocracy. But what about actually making sure that everybody can get a really good education. Where are the Democrats on that? Well, as you know, they want to force children and a lot of the children who are forced to go to subpar uh, schools are minorities. A lot of them are not, but there are a lot of children who are, are forced into these failing public schools and Democrats will not let them get out. They will not give them options. They say no. We need to have you in the schools because 
you are the customer. You don't have a choice in the product, but you got to keep buying the product. Here's a parent in Minnesota, African-American woman. Here is she. Here she is in, in Minnesota. And she's speaking about the school choice issue, which conservatives should be all over the right Republicans should be talking about this much more than we have. Democrats are still trying to force kids into failing schools. It's unfair. It's wrong. But we all know we saw this with the school uh, closures because of COVID. The teachers unions are very, very powerful. Here's what this Minnesota parent says about the school choice fight in Minnesota. People of color. And he said it's time to get out of our comfort zones. We have to consider change a moral imperative. Well, I hope, Governor Walls, that you consider this change a moral imperative that will make a difference in the lives of people of color. I hope you get out of your comfort zone and don't just vote party lines and really think about what would make a difference and that you walk your talk. I don't know how anyone that says they care about people of color can just leave them in these failing schools. When they know the schools are failing them, they know that a bad education is a direct pipeline to a life of dependence and crime. And they know they have a chance to vote on education savings accounts that will give the very people that they say they care most about a chance to get out of these schools. How can they just say no? How can they just say no? You have to be trapped. You have to stay in these schools, even though 70% of you can't read. And then go with your lawn signs and your t-shirts chanting Black Lives Matter. It's Ah, this black parent, this uh, mother in Minnesota, is going right after the heart of some of the Democrat moral preening and fraudulence here. Oh, don't do things that will actually help people in high crime, low income neighborhoods. Don't actually improve school options for minority students, for all students, but for minority students as well and give them a better shot at a more prosperous future. No, keep them in those failing schools. Make sure those tax dollars keep flowing to the teachers unions. That's the most important thing. But as long as Democrats can put BLM flags up, as long as Democrats can make claims about how much they support Black Lives Matter, they get the real benefit that they want, which is to make it seem like the Democrats who hold those views are good people. They don't have to do anything. They're not helping anybody. And they don't really care. But the virtue signaling is so seductive. Well, this parents had enough of it. Absolute hypocrisy. Every kid, every kid, no matter their race or income, deserves a right to a good education. Enough with the platitudes about black lives. It's time to do something tangible that will make a difference in their lives. Governor Walls and Democrats, I'm asking that you include education saving accounts in your final education budget. Thank you. And now I'm... My name is Kofi, K-O-F-I, Monska, M-O-N-T-Z-K-A. And now I'm going to introduce Benito, our next speaker. Passionate about the subject matter. That woman really cares about what's happening for kids in Minnesota. They want school choice. They want savings accounts. They want options for parents to go to better schools. It does matter. We all know that the school actually matters. 
You know, is it, is it a good, a high performing school? Does it have teachers who are really invested in the students? Does it have a student body, generally speaking, that is there to learn and doesn't view this as a glorified babysitting program? These things matter. But you'll notice that the, the things that Democrats talk about, they're not discussing ways to make the system better for everybody at, at you know, from the top down level in education. No, what they want is just to have some little quick fixes, you know, perhaps an expansion of affirmative action at the end. You know, push a few more people into Harvard who probably wouldn't have gotten in were it not for affirmative action. That's how the left views things. And then they tell everybody else who has a problem with the public school system, be quiet. Two years ago, I was told policy 1040 was just an umbrella philosophy and you weren't going to allow boys into the girls' locker rooms. But here you are doing just that. Everyone knows what a boy is, even you. Your proposed policies are dangerous and rooted in sexism. When woke kids asked me if I was a lesbian or a trans boy because I cut my hair short, it should tell you these modern identities are superficial. My guidance counselor's response to my concerns about bathroom privacy and safety was, well, there are stalls in the bathrooms. Now boys are reading erotica in the classrooms next to girls, and you want to give them access to girls' locker rooms, and you want to force girls to call those boys she. You do this in the name of inclusivity while ignoring the girls who will pay the price. Your policies choose boys' wants over girls' needs. A Loudoun County 8th grade girl there who's letting the school board know that she can understand some very basic and observable truths, even if they can't. But really, the other point that I think she makes here that's so critical, and you see so much of this, is how rapidly the left has accelerated the plans to transform our society in recent years. They make promises, oh, we'll never do that. We'll never do that thing that you think we're going to do. That's not what this is about. And then they just they, they push a little bit more. The incrementalism gets a little bit further. And sure enough, after that, it turns into, well, yes, we're in charge now. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, we are actually going to make sure that transgender boys in schools use female bathrooms. If you want to know how devoted to this idea they are, and of course, Obama with his recent gaslighting about CRT, oh, Republicans care so much about CRT, uh, there are... Uh, There was a time when Obama, when he was president, threatened to cut off Department of Education funding to uh, to a state that had uh, a problem with the so-called bathroom bill. He was going to cut off federal funds for education to any place that did not go along with the Department of Education federal top down guidance. And that just gives you a sense of how much it matters to them, how important it is to them. All right. This is not a minor issue. This is not something that just is, is in the background. No, they, they want to erase gender distinctions. And they, you see this all the time. They want gender neutral clothing for toddlers now. And they have the you know, they wanted to get rid of gender reveal parties. Which I don't even understand why people do that, but that's not the point. Uh, there are all these efforts to go at gender and the family and structurals of tradition uh, structures rather of traditional human life stretching back for a very long time 
right? Male and female gender, no, that's not a thing. We are all really just vessels for state policy. We are all really, we, we exist so that the state can be empowered to create a utopian society, a perfectly just society, and by justice they mean everyone is the same. But that's not possible. We will never all be the same. It doesn't matter what the state says. It doesn't matter if the state got us all to agree and to believe that we are all the same. There will be men and women. There will be short and tall. There will be skinny and had a few too many cookies over the course of the pandemic, but no judgments here because I'm one of them, right? Like, that's that's the reality of human existence. And so I, I sit here and I see what they're trying to do, and I've seen in other societies in living memory or recent memory, maybe two generations back, depends on whether we're talking about the Soviets or the Chinese communists, this is what Marxism does. This is how it pulls a society apart from not just the inside out, but from the top down. The Marxists want to be in charge. They want no one to be in a position to stop them from doing these things. And you're, you're seeing how intensely uh, dishonest so much of the left-wing uh, approach to all this is. They won't tell you what's really going on. They won't tell you what their intentions are. They act incredibly offended when you, when you point out some of the inconsistencies. They just, go, they just go on attack all the time. I mean, we've reached a point now, if I had told you, just, just to pull up an example here, if I had told you that there would come a time when the mayor of the third largest city in America, Chicago, would say explicitly, I am only doing interviews with journalists of color. I am only doing interviews with black and brown journalists, period. People would have said, that's so, that's outrageous. That will never happen. That, everybody understands that that's not fair. That's not right. That's divisive. Well, it actually just happened. And is the left upset by it? Do they have a problem with it? No, actually. They're like, oh, wow, she's pushing it a little further than we anticipate a little faster. But, yeah, this is what we're heading toward, a society where this can be acceptable from those in power. Here's the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. Horrible at her job, by the way. Uh, play 12. Well, the, the, the lawsuit is completely frivolous. Um, I'd use a more colorful term if we weren't on TV. But here's the thing. I'm the mayor of the third largest city in the country. I'm an African-American uh, woman, to state the obvious. Every day when I look out across my podium, I don't see people who look like me. But more to the point, I don't see people who reflect the richness and diversity of the city. So, yes, I started a long overdue conversation about diversity in newsrooms and oh. coverage. You all are the mirrors on society. You reflect uh, with a critical and important lens the news of the day 
day. You hold the public officials like me accountable. You must be diverse. It can't be that in a, in a city like Chicago, with all the talent that we have, that we can't find diverse journalists of color. Of course we can. What they need is opportunity. And I hope my conversation has pricked the consciousness of the people who do the hiring decisions in media rooms all across the city mm-hmm. and hopefully across the country. we got to do better. Yeah, this is a long way of saying, Lori, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor here, saying, that she discriminated on the basis of race, and she's fine with that. She discriminated against others on the basis of race, but because she discriminated in favor of black and brown journalists, she thinks that's okay. It's actually racism. That's what the definition of racism is. Telling some people no because of your skin color and other people yes because of their skin color. But this is how distorted our conversation around race in this country has become. And this is also why the left is so obsessed with it. They want to change the most foundational definitions and concepts around racism to suit their desire for power and control of society. Because if we have standards that we can apply to this, that we can all we can all understand, say, hold on a second. Racism is racism is bad, period. Racism is when you treat somebody differently because of their skin color, period. We can all look at that and say, okay, well, those are those are universally applicable rules. You could call them principles. You could call them standards. But they don't want that. They like this. Well, racism is really first. You have to take into account the hierarchies of power and the intersectional dynamics and and historical uh, systemic oppression. And, you know, then, you know, then they, they create this whole making it up as they go along nonsense they go so sometimes racism is actually okay as long as it's only against white people asian americans i mean you go down a list you go hold on a second really yeah well, why is it uh, that they can use these categorizations also and say all these things and contradict themselves and the media just goes along with it because people are terrified because people don't want to actually have this conversation. They don't want to get into it. They just want to avoid the problem, avoid, uh, the problem of speaking the truth. They want to just go along. I mean, could you can you imagine if we, we play this game all the time? We say, what if the races were reversed or what if we had different? But what you see is just like I tell you about hypocrisy. The left doesn't they're not defending it anymore on the ground of principles. They're defending on the ground of emotional blackmail and pure power dynamics and fear you do what the left says you agree with their nonsensical contradictory and i would argue immoral approach to race relations in america today uh you either go along with it or you get crushed you either go along with it or bad things happen to you this is why I keep saying, be an be a counter revolutionary. The left is trying a revolution in America today. They are trying to change this country at the most fundamental level. They're trying to erase or or distort or transform some of our our foundational concepts as a society. We must say no. We must explain why, and we must hold the line against this. That's what it means to be a counter revolutionary against the left 
and yes, against the Democrat Party. But that just is the reality. Yesterday we had a vote. Very radical vote, Jake, is whether or not there should be equal pay for equal work in America, whether women should receive the same pay as men. Very, very radical, no doubt. We didn't get one Republican to vote for it. So we are where we are. The Republican Party has moved over the years to away from being what we call a center-right party to rather a right-wing extremist party. There are some exceptions. There are some moderate Republicans, but they are few and far between. And I think given that reality, what we have got to do, the, the American people voted for a Democratic president, Democratic House, Democratic Senate. Our job now is to do what the American people want. Everything that I've told you, from childcare to expanding Medicare to lowering the age of Medicare eligibility, these are popular ideas, raising the minimum wage, etc. It's what the American people want. Let's do it. Just spend endless amounts of money. Don't question where the money's going to come from. The rich, the millionaires, and the billionaires will pay for it. That's right. America's favorite, favorite Marxist, Bernie Sanders. Oh, he's a democratic socialist. The guy's a Marxist. He's now getting back into the headlines. And I think this is yet another time when we have to take a step back and say, what the heck is this guy talking about? Not because he just says the same thing over and over again, but because, and it's like it never changes. This guy's a broken record. Um, The Republican Party is a right-wing extremist party. I, I would just like to know, how is that true? You know, if you, I think he was talking to fake Tapper there, who's a smarmy little fraud. Maybe he can put out some tweets about how much he supports the troops. I mean, fake Tapper's the worst. But, you know, oh, it, oh it's not about his brand. No, he's really, really just cares. Really just cares about the troops. Yeah. Um, fake, fake spent a lot of time serving his country. But anyway, uh, this is this is a situation where you say, well, no, let's just let's just take them at their word here for a second. How is the Republican Party? a right-wing extremist party. What are the right-wing extreme things? If you ask me, how is the Democrat Party extreme? I'd say, well, spending more in, say, one administration than any, you know, four or five administrations before it combined. I'm making up the numbers on that, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, you know, taking us to $30 trillion in debt and wanting to throw another four or five trillion on top of that because who cares? That's pretty just numerically extreme, of having the biggest crisis of illegal entry at our border in 20 years, and it'll end up being probably ever, having a a million five, let's say, illegal immigrants come into America and then manage to stay by gaming the asylum system, that's extreme. I can actually point to things. Saying that there's no difference between men and women and that there's a psychological condition that can allow you to switch your gender and you are the other gender and must be treated as such. These would be considered, if you were to go through American history, these would all be extreme positions. These would be fringe. These would be way outside the mainstream. These are these are now Democrat positions. So in what way, I mean, even something like socialized medicine, entirely socialized medicine, which Bernie Sanders really wants, I mean, you can say he wants Medicare for all, but that's not good. It's not going to stop at Medicare for all, just like everything else they do. It'll be Medicare for all, and then it will be they want full-on socialized medicine with the, the state paying and controlling the doctors and the hospitals. And 
So in what way is, is the conservative uh, Republican Party extreme? I mean, if anything, I think you'd say the Republican Party is still a little bit too wimpy on some stuff. If anything, you'd say the Republican Party keeps thinking that there's a creation of a neutral space in the public sphere and we're just all going to play nice with each other in it. And we don't want to use state power. We don't want to use government authority to promote the good and suppress the bad. We're just going to say, well, we'll let people make their own decisions in there about this thing without the government getting involved. And the left just says, no, the government's going to dictate this. This is what keeps happening. Happens all over our society. They say that you know, they say that in our in our state schools, which is what public schools are uh, in our state run schools, they're going to teach critical race theory. We say, no, 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 let's just, you know, let's just teach history that's not all politicized and everything else. And they go, no, we're going to teach critical race theory. We come back and now people are realizing, okay, we actually have to ban critical race theory. It's not enough to try to create a neutral space. You have to actually create a space. You have to actually take action within that sphere. Uh, But it's just fascinating to hear something as as stupid as the Republican Party is a far right party. In what way? Because we don't want the, you know, because we want a 30, uh, you know, five or 37 percent tax rate instead of 39. I mean, if anything, you could look at the Republican Party and say it's kind of ineffectual. And what does it even really stand for other than just trying to stop the Democrats from being completely insane? But to say it's a far right party, where, how? What is the policy issue? Oh, because because we don't want abortion all nine months of a pregnancy. We don't want state. We don't want to force people's tax dollars to go to pay for abortion, which is a barbaric procedure that any person that sits and thinks honestly about it would say, oh, that's deeply immoral and wrong. But I know the brainwashing on this has been among the most complete of anything in our society for liberals. So where is the far right extreme here of the Republican Party? I mean, Bernie's Bernie saying, look, he's Bernie's a Marxist. That's what he is. We know it. We can see it. There's plenty of this all across America now. This is what we're up against. The pandemic is almost over. And at least in this country, given the rates of infection and hospitalization, vaccination rates, people are feeling like they can finally go back to normal. But that doesn't mean that we can let this go because there's a lot of accountability that must be uh, sought. There must be answers to some major questions here. Our friend David Marcus, who is the uh, senior New York correspondent for thefederalist.com, joins us now. He has a new book out, Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. Mr. Marcus, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Buck. What are the biggest lies? Tell me about Charade. You and I have been discussing this for a year now. You're in about a a half dozen or so folks that I've consistently been able to talk to about Fauciism, lockdownerism, mask mania, and have been willing to speak the truth. You've never bent the knee. I'm excited you've written this book. Let's let's dive into this. What are the lies? Well, so every chapter um, covers a different myth or lie, and and there's about 14 of them that I go in the book. So go into in, in the book. So. You know, right off the bat, the very first one uh, is this idea that the Trump administration wasted the months of January and February. This just seems to be uh, gospel at this point. And it's it's blatantly false. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm able to, to, to really prove that uh, pretty distinctively uh, 
in that first chapter of, of the book with documents from HHS. I mean, the fact of the matter is the Trump administration began work on a vaccine before China had reported one death. Uh, this is this is really like in the in the first two weeks of January. Uh, so, you know, that was a big one right off the bat. Another one was this idea that using the term Chinese virus uh, was somehow racist. Not only was that a lie, the only people who really benefited from that were the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, so that was even worse than a lie. You know, we're all in this together uh, was a lie. Uh, Andrew Cuomo is such a great, competent leader was a lie. Southern governors are engaged in human sacrifice by opening their states was a lie. Trump doesn't deserve very much credit for Operation Warp Speed was a lie. I mean, there's a there's a lot of lies, Buck. And and yet, as we as we you know go forward here, and finally, I mean, I can tell everyone listening that New York City, I've I've started to see, you know, people are they're calming down in restaurants. If they tell you to put the mask on when you walk in, they're kind of embarrassed to tell you. I've had this a few times. Like, hey, would you? It, it's not how dare you breathe air like a normal human. Uh, you're killing my grandparents. Now it's like, hey, look, the rules are stupid, but would you kind of. So that that's to that's good. I mean, that's moving the right direction. But I'm not. I, I think I'm in the same category as you on this one. I won't speak for you. Well, you can tell us if you agree, but. I'm not letting this stuff go like I'm not I'm not allowing this to linger in the background so that the next time the state declares any kind of it's not just health emergencies, folks. They'll declare an emergency, whether it's on climate or gun violence or whatever. We're, we're all conditioned to just accept their stupid rules and their excesses. So we have to look back, David. I think it will. Were any of these things even worthwhile? Did this protect people? I mean, it's it's worse than that. Right. I, I mean, no. I, look, we know we can we can compare what happened in Florida to what happened in New York. And any honest person who compares those two very distinct approaches knows and will admit uh, that Florida had far better results than places like New York and, and, and California that, that had these severe lockdowns. Um, but I'll go a step further. Uh, in the book, I. I uh, I have a conversation that I had with Joe Borelli, who's city, you know, Staten Island city councilman, used to be a state assemblyman. Uh, and this was last summer, just a, just a couple months into this. And I said to him, I said, Joe, um, I'm curious, how's the state being governed these days? And he said to me, it's basically a Cuomo dictatorship. He said the state legislature gave him these emergency powers. Uh, he can do whatever he wants. And I said, Joe, has this ever happened before? Uh, and Joe was like, I, you know, I, I don't think so. Th this was only a couple months in. Cuomo still has a bunch of these emergency powers. That is so dangerous in a democracy because the executive branch in, in our system of government doesn't do constituent services. It doesn't answer to the people. Legislators do that. So we had nowhere to turn. There was no one we could go to. Uh, it's a mess. And I think that's one of the really underreported aspects of what happened to the country over the last year. And you're absolutely right. I mean, they'll try this again for racism, for climate change, for, you know, for whatever it is. It's scary stuff. Look. We're speaking to David Marcus. He's got a new book out, Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. And, David, I think that if we're talking about places that got crushed unnecessarily, 
Uh, there are few where that is as clearly the case, few areas. There are, there are a bunch of things we could talk about, but there are a few where it was as off, should have been as obvious as on. Not Remember, it's not just school closures. It's been a whole series of decisions made in schools to turn them into these kind of viral uh, lockdown lab experiments when even where schools were open somewhat, they had kids with plexiglass dividers around them, kids who were double masking in school, all this stuff. I mean, I, I say this openly. P- people that double mask their children out on the playground when they're trying to run with friends. I mean, this is abuse. This is child abuse. I, I'm, I'm sorry that it's, you know, makes people upset to hear this, but it's abuse. And it created psychological trauma for kids to be kept out of school for as long as they were because Fauci is a little bureaucrat coward who didn't want to upset the teachers unions. Like we actually need to speak about these things. Yeah. I mean, in general, what we've, what we've put kids through, uh, you know, in order to, to protect adults uh, is a dark stain uh, on American society over the, the past year, because our job is to do exactly the opposite of that. And somehow we just consistently threw children uh, under the bus to protect adults from a disease that had, you know, a, a tiny, tiny, tiny fatality rate. Um, it's 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 really bad. Um, and, you know, I, if I hear one more person say, oh, kids are tougher than you think they are like th- that's not that, that's really not the point. And, and this rewriting of history now, remember, I think it was it was, it was last month, um, Biden and Randy Weingarten of the uh, teachers union, they said, we're going to start a crusade to, to get kids back in school full time. What, what do you talk? Uh, what what do you mean a crusade against uh, against who? You're the ones who said this. Everybody else was saying, get the kids back into school. And now they want to pretend like that was never their position. Like they've really wanted kids in school the whole time. Um, it's it, it's horrible. What, what's been done to children uh, over the past year, uh, we really need to take stock uh, of what we did because we can't do it again. Speaking of David Marcus, he is the author of a new book, which you should all check out as soon as you can, Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed the Nation. David, we're going to take a quick pause here. We'll come back with you in just a second. All right, we're back now with David Marcus. He is the Federalist New York correspondent and the author of Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. I'm, I'm really curious about this, David, because, again, you're one of my, my New York City uh, COVID lockdown skeptic folks, right? There's, there were not a lot of us, especially the early days, there were not a lot of us. I, I, I'm not going to start calling out conservatives now, but I know some people that are on the right who were very pro-Fauci really until about five minutes ago. I mean, certainly until this year. Um, but so I, I appreciate what you've been doing all along here. I, I'm wondering, have you come across anybody who really changed their mind on this one from being a, a, a true believer in the brilliance of, of Governor Cuomo and Dr. Fauci and masks will save us all the way to the other side of, wow, this has all just been this has been a charade, as your book title indicates. Like, do you know? Because I feel like people are they're so dug in 
to thinking that they were smart enough to know what was going on with this early on that they never want to admit, oh, I was among the I was among the swindled. Yeah, I mean, look, there are still plenty of people out there who are so invested, who who put so much investment in all of this that I think they'll never uh, listen to reason on on this. Um, And I get it. You know, listen, if you spend a year basically locked in your own house, uh, it's not easy to admit that that was a mistake. But I do think along the way you've seen public opinion on this move really at a, at a couple of, of, of key junctures, right? Obviously, the first big one was the protests. Uh, the moment that tens of thousands of people started gathering masks or no masks uh, to protest racism, you know, everybody sort of said, okay, but why can't we have a Yankees game at half capacity with masks on that, right? That, that clearly made no sense. And for all the media's efforts to to try to say, well, racism is a public health crisis, too. A ton of people at that moment said, no, this isn't working. I think another one was last winter when Cuomo shut down indoor dining again here in New York and at the same time released the contact tracing stuff that said dining in general was only responsible for 1.4% of the spread of the virus. I think that was another moment where a lot of people said, what are you doing here? And yes, yeah, certainly over the past couple of weeks, as Fauci's emails have emerged and as he has declared himself to literally be science, um, I think there are more people who are willing to uh, admit that, yeah, a lot of this was was a big mistake. So I am hopeful um, that opinion is moving on, on that. And it's important for the very reason that you said at the top, which was that we need not only accountability, but we need to make sure that that we don't follow this path, uh, you know, another time. Yeah, I, I'm worried that, first of all, I, I, I keep, I'm talking about this as though we're done. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be flying to Nashville next weekend and I'm going to have to wear a mask and I'm going to have people paid by the airline tell me, you know, when everyone does the. Uh, where, you know, they always say, like, don't crowd the aisle, you know, don't pull down. Everyone always just stands up and pulls down their bags right away. But they're going to be doing the whole make sure you social distance as you exit the plane thing. And they say this, and I I, see, I think it is uh, debasing. I think it's humiliating to be forced by by your job to say manifestly idiotic things and to enforce manifestly idiotic rules. See, this has been a problem for me all along, and maybe it's just part of my mentality. It's maybe why I do what I do and why I didn't like working for the government all that much. And there's a whole bunch of things that come together here, David. But I'm not I'm not willing to just sort of say, "Okay, well, enough of it's gone. No, I want all of this gone. And I'm not going to rest until people realize this was always stupid, folks, like to being told that you had to put a mask on to go walk up to the, uh, the host at a restaurant. And then to take it off when you sit down or when you're on a plane, pull the mask down while you eat, pull it up while you're sitting there. This was always moronic. This was never okay. That's where I am. Yeah. Listen, my 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 10 year old knew that. Right. When they when 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 indoor dining opened up again last year, you know, I I took my 10 year old to a restaurant. And as as we were leaving, we had to get up, obviously, to like walk out the door. And I said, you know you got to put your mask on now. And he goes, he says to me, 
Right, you know, because the coronavirus can't affect you if you're sitting down. Right, he's 10. But, I mean, he, like, he knew that. Um, yeah, look, there's going to be outlier things like cruise ships and, like, airplanes. And those, it's going to be hard to, to, to shake them from what they're doing. But, you know, I, I went to Mass last weekend, and I think technically in my church you're supposed to be wearing the mask. And, again, I was with my son, and we walked in, and I saw about 20 or 25% of the people in the pews didn't have masks on. And I said to my son, oh, take it off. I took mine off. And the, nobody said anything, right? There wasn't an official rule there. It's just that slowly as more people sort of have the courage to say, no, I'm not going to wear this right now, um, things start to move in the, in the right direction. So, you know, knock on wood, man, ho- you know, ho- hopefully hopefully that, that keeps happening and, and happening more. We're, we're speaking to David Marcus. You all should check out his book called charade the covid lies that crushed a nation speaking of the nation david i i feel like the land of the free home of the brave thing uh we're we're not really that free and we i I will say i thought that mass non-compliance against a lot of this stuff this is where i was wrong i thought after three months people would be like what are we doing and after six months There'd be a huge, you know, we're not doing this craziness anymore surge. And it actually took uh, about 15 months. So I, I feel like if I'm, if I'm just being totally honest about, you know, assessing where I was on all this, I overestimated the desire for uh, individual freedom and rationality of not all of the American people, obviously, but solid majorities of the American people uh, by about two or three times. Yeah, you know, I, I, I will say this. I, I, I think that as in all things, um, the sort of Acela Corridor elites are way, way, way overrepresented, uh, overrepresented in terms of what this actual experience was like. You know, I had the opportunity to, to travel a lot during this as I was writing the book. I was out in Vegas. I was in rural Pennsylvania. I, you know, I got to places that weren't D.C. or New York. And, you know, you'll be happy to know that there was a lot less um, compliance there. It's funny, you know, I, I, first of all, you know, you read these articles now in the Nation of the New York Times of people who are like, oh, I'm going to miss the lockdown. It was such a nice, quiet time. And you just want to, you know, tell them to shut up, right? Because, like, these aren't the people who lost their jobs and didn't know how they were going to feed their kids, first of all. But second of all, now you watch these like beer ads and stuff on TV, right? And they're acting like this is the first time anyone's gotten together to like have a drink together. And I don't know about you, but like I think, you know, most people, we were doing that months ago, right? Like all over the country, I was seeing this happening. So there's yeah, I gave a speech weird... in North Carolina last August with almost 300 people there <laughs> so yeah yeah I mean, you, you know what i mean so it, but it's very strange because you watch these ads and it's like you know oh you finally get to see your family again and it's like most people have been seeing their family at, at least for months now maybe they were getting a covid test first like maybe they were taking precautions um but yeah i i think we've overblown to some extent the extent to which people really did isolate themselves but you're absolutely right there was a segment of the population 
that did that really aggressively. And that's exactly the segment of the population that gets paid attention to way, way, way too much um, by our media. David Marcus, everybody. Charade is the book, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. Go pick up your copy. David, appreciate you, man. We'll have you on the big, big, big show soon. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Look, it doesn't matter what your politics are or who you voted for. You should be able to share your thoughts online, right? Well, if you're a conservative, you're a Republican, you're a Trump supporter, you know you can't. The big tech monopoly has decided to suppress as well as surveil. They're using silencing tactics and censorship against you online. To fight back against big tech's control of the Internet, I use ExpressVPN. When you use ExpressVPN on your phone or computer, it's just a simple app. You anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers and cyber criminals. What I like most is how easy it is to use. It takes just one click to protect all your devices. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET and Wired. Revoke big tech's right to your data. Secure the internet with the VPN I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck to get three extra months free with my exclusive link. Go to expressvpn.com slash buck right now to learn more. I've said I'm going to go to the border. And when are you going to the border, Vice President? The administration has asked. I'm not finished. (laughs) I've said I'm going to the border. And also, if we are going to deal with the problems at the border, we have to deal with the problems that cause people to go to the border, to flee to the border. And that is the root causes. So my first trip as Vice President of the United States was to go, in terms of a foreign trip, to Guatemala, to be on the ground there to address and to and to be informed of the root causes why are the people of Guatemala leaving do you have a date tiene una fecha para su viaje a la frontera para ver la situación con sus propios ojos i uh, i will keep you posted <laughs> she just won't go she just won't do it kamala doesn't want to go to the border it's so easy i mean we're not asking here hey vice president harris when are you going to pyongyang You know, when are you going to the North Pole? When? No, no, no. When are you going to, I don't know, stop in El Paso, Texas or McAllen or, hey, San Diego. She could go to the border in her home state. (laughs) She won't do it. Won't do it. It's like it's so hard. She's so busy. I'm so busy doing things, she says. Sure. Not really, but that's okay. That's okay. Oh, my gosh. It's crazy, isn't it? I had thought at the start of this presidency that Joe Biden was the patron saint of unimpressive mediocrities, because if if this guy could be president, anybody could be president. Uh, But now I'm starting to think that maybe that title belongs to Kamala Harris. It's it's remarkable that she's gotten as far as she has with nothing that you could point to. You'd say, why is she? impressive exactly what has she done is is she a great leader was there really important legislation is she really politically gifted no none of that none of that but somehow she's the vice president and i just love that they keep they keep going into this this issue they keep asking her because now journalists have realized hey it's already out there 
So they can't really get in trouble. You know, now that people have already been asking the question, they can't really get in trouble for pushing in more. And it just means that you're going to get a soundbite that people pick up because every time all Kamala Harris has to say is we're working on scheduling a trip right now. We'll let you know. That's all she has to say. But if she said that and then a month or two went by and she still hadn't been there, guess what would happen? So instead, she does this gets all angry thing about it. Oh, you know, how dare you ask me a real question? Uh, you, you've got you got to love it. You got to love it. But one thing that has been a constant, we know that the the media for the four years of the Trump administration just self-immolated. I mean, lit lit itself on fire. The media during the Trump era was so disgustingly dishonest that it will never recover in the eyes of people who want something that is fair minded and ethical and and decent. That doesn't mean neutral, but at least has some principles at play, believes there's there's a greater good than just pushing for Team Democrat. And I think that something else, and I can't remember who it was, I saw someone pointing this out on Twitter, and it's a thought and it's a conversation that I've had with many friends of mine. And I think I've talked about it here on the show too. And that is, we're at a point now where it should be clear to to anybody that these media outlets are telling people this stuff because they know their audiences want to hear this stuff. That this has gone beyond just, oh, we need to trash the media to oh the audience wants to be lied to i mean the cnn audience wants to have journos who go on air and say things that are not true about donald trump as long as obviously they're very defamatory and and very destructive and attack him that's what they that's what they're tuning in for they don't have some other view of things that is what they want. And and I think that this this is why you see now I mean, someone like Jim Acosta, who is I'm, I'm just going to give credit where it's due. I mean, Jim Acosta is hilarious. This guy's not very smart. He's laughably dishonest. He still thinks he's a journalist, thinks he's doing really important work and takes himself very seriously, which is the funniest part. That's why Acosta fake tapper. These people are hilarious to me because they they think they're really they're really important, you know. One thing about about being in the media, you've always got to know you're always replaceable. You're always lucky if you could even make a living doing this stuff. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I know this might sound cheesy, but it's who you are, how you treat people. That's what your real worth is. Right. But if you're in the media, you have all these all these people that are so worried about making sure they have the perfect, you know, fake tan and hairspray and everything has to look just so on camera and ridiculous. Uh, but there's a little bit of jealousy that comes up among the left wing media right now because CNN's ratings are terrible, uh, as they should be. And I mean, CNN should go out of business as a news entity. It won't. It makes a lot of money, unfortunately. Just a little inside baseball for you. It makes a lot of money off of CNN International. Um, but this is the, the truth of it is that CNN is. Um, a horrible institution and it got a lot worse. Some of you might be saying, well, Buck, didn't you get paid by them for a couple of years yet yeah, to be a conservative? Always remember that I went to CNN to make the conservative case and they always knew that I was a conservative political commentator. That's how they used to uh, they used to uh, put me up on the screen. That was my official designation. 
but they used to at least be willing to hear the other side. Now the other side's argument puts them into fits of rage. Now when when you have a conservative point of view that comes up, CNN loses its mind, and Jim Acosta, this is why I was thinking about him, is a perfect example of this. I mean, this guy is just nuts. Play clip one. You know, if Trump or his lackeys go on Fox and they spew this nonsense about the election and they're not fact checked in real time, then they're operating as propagandists and they're doing a bad thing for this country. And it, it pains me to say that because I've known some people that have worked at Fox over the years. There were people at Fox who were pinging me during the Trump presidency saying, way to go, Jim, keep going. You know, I know there are folks there who want to do the right thing, but to some extent, they've decided to become something like the tobacco industry, where they've decided, OK, we know we we make a product that harms people, but we're just going to have to double down and do it because it's just making a ton of money. I do think that uh, I, my hope is deep down that there are folks there over time who will come to their senses and realize that they're doing great damage to this country. And to have people like Tucker Carlson, he, he, there was this clip the other night where he was, he was trying to say that, you know, white supremacy, uh, he said something about white supremacy being the worst thing that's happened in America or something like that. But it, he almost said the best thing or something like that. I mean, he ha he has these moments where he just sounds like a race baiting tyrant. And it's like, what is what's what's what is he doing? What is that? Think about what the little moron Acosta is saying here. He is criticizing Tucker Carlson for something that Jim Acosta thinks Tucker could have said, but didn't say. You know, just just imagine that if, if I went on TV and I said, well, we can all agree that murder is wrong. Jim Acosta could go on CNN and say, you know, I think that Buck was going to say murder is actually really cool. Murder's great. I mean, he didn't say that, but that just goes to show you that he could have said it. What a bad person he is. This is the level of idiocy and the level of absurdity that we are talking about here. But sure enough, sure enough. Um, and, you know, CNN is accusing others of being a of running a BS factory. I would just note not only was CNN the Russia collusion network for four years, which is the the most blatant and and horrific media lie um, that has ever lasted for that duration about a president I've ever seen. Uh, remember, CNN also ran with the Brett Kavanaugh revelations. I mean, people who believe that Brett Kavanaugh did those things are stupid. You're you're just it's just you're not very smart if you really believe under if you were watching what was going on and you're observing, you're just not very bright if you think that Brett Kavanaugh was a serial gang rapist in high school that just got away with it all. And we suddenly discovered it right when he's be about to become a Supreme Court justice. And there's no proof whatsoever, even close to proof, no evidence, nothing. Can't even prove that he ever met two of the three women who came forward. But if you believe that, you're just not very smart. And unfortunately, we live in a, in a society where the really dumb people can not only have a say in our democracy and all that stuff, but the really dumb people can become anchors at CNN and get big paychecks and think they're really important and think that they're saving the country. You know, there are a lot of very, very stupid people in the media. I mean, Jim Acosta was talking about how false, you know, things at Fox News are. This is just a collection. 
Remember, the, we've had the Inspector General of the Interior Department. Oh, yeah, he's a Trumper. You know, Jim Acosta said, basically said that. Oh, he's auditioning for a, a job in a new Trump administration. Are you a reporter? Would you have any evidence of that? Really, the Inspector General of the Interior Department. Yeah, he's under a Biden administration, puts out this report, and it's because he's such a Trumper. No, you moron, Acosta. It's because this is what actually happened. And the media lied about it. They lied. They told the story over and over again, recklessly. Here's number. Here's clip six. Now, you might wonder why did the police, why were they ordered to move on protesters at that moment? Obviously, the president wanted a photo op. And I mean, for a photo op? To make way for a White House photo op. Lafayette Square photo op. Uh, to clear out these protesters from Lafayette Park so the president could have this photo op. The president wanted peaceful protesters, the kind he said he just supports. He wanted them out of the way for his photo op. And it was President Trump sending a message, a message that he feels good about today, looking at these images. He wanted to show that he could move Americans physically out of the way to do this photo op. And his administration's violent clear of a peaceful protest for a photo op. Clear them out with uh, with gas uh, and, and go in there with batons. Uh, and uh, they do so for the simple reason that the president wants to walk across Pennsylvania Avenue through Lafayette Park to go have a photo op. Even if it meant tear gassing peaceful protesters, hitting them with flashbangs, pepper spray and rubber bullets, somebody handed the president that Bible and then he stood there and that was it. That was the photo op. Do you think any of them feel ashamed or or feel foolish? They were putting a lie out there, a falsehood, at least. They could say, oh, we didn't know we believed it. Yeah, well, of course, they anything bad about Trump, they automatically believe. So even if they thought this one might have been true, there's a greater culpability based on the fact that they've abandoned fairness and pretend that they haven't. Right. There's so there's so many layers of dishonesty when you're talking about uh, CNN, uh, so much, so much stupid, so much stupidity. Oh, here's Don Lemon at CNN. Play four. No matter what you're saying, you're never going to tell me that Trump was a change agent for good. And people thought that by him coming in, that he was going to be some sort of great change agent that was going to. That's exactly do, what they thought. Well, uh, they were absolutely wrong. I how, know. How could you think he's going to be a great change agent when he's going to grab women by the He's go. He thought the former president uh, was uh, wasn't born in this country when he had, had said and done all. How could anyone on earth think that Donald Trump was the perfect change agent for them? One would have to be delusional to think that okay. it wasn't a change agent. <laughs> oh, man, Don Lemon. That guy has a show at CNN, everybody. What else do I have to say for you? What else do I have to tell you? I mean, there you go. Speaking of CNN, there is a return to the CNN on-air roster that has gotten a lot of attention. You will recall um, Jeffrey Tubin, a longtime legal analyst, and uh, it seems like a, a longtime odious fellow. I think that's fair to say. Jeffrey Tubin is not someone that anybody would think is a is a good guy based on his past and his history. I don't know him. I've actually never met him, never talked to him, but just telling you, that's the guy's reputation. Um, he was the guy who was on a Zoom call, and during the call, 
it wasn't like the call had ended. They went on a break or something. He decided to engage in, I believe you could call it auto erotica. I think I could say that on there. Special fun, fun time. Yeah, there you go. And it was in front of his colleagues who saw it. He went on CNN yesterday to talk about this. They had a whole interview about it. You're going to hear it because I had to play seven. To quote Jay Leno, what the hell were you thinking? Well, obviously, uh, I wasn't thinking very well or very much. And um, it was something that was inexplicable to me. I think one point I, I wouldn't exactly say in my defense because nothing is really in my defense. I didn't think I was on the call. I didn't think other people could see me. You so, thought that you had turned off your camera? Correct. I thought that I had turned off the Zoom call. Now, that's not a defense. This was deeply moronic and indefensible. But, I mean, that, that, is, part of, that, that is part of the story. Um, and, you know, I have spent the seven subsequent months, miserable months in my life, I can certainly confess. I'm trying to be a better person. I mean, in therapy, trying to do some public service, um, working in a food bank, which I certainly am going to continue to do, working on a new book about the Oklahoma City bombing. But I am trying to become the kind of person that people can trust again. Can I just I'm kind of curious here, and I'm not somebody who's ever been pro Jeffrey Tubin, but does this make him a bad person? I mean, it's it's obviously embarrassing and gross and dumb, but is he's a bad person? Because I think this is really interesting, actually. He obviously made a very, very stupid mistake, but I don't believe he intended to do this. I don't think anyone thinks he meant to do this on his New Yorker call and have everyone see it and, and then get him fired from a job he had for almost 30 years. I mean, this this is dumb, but I don't think it makes him a bad guy, right? If you... Uh, I, there are a lot of things you can do that are really stupid that don't make you. Uh, I mean, he might be a bad person. I think he probably is completely apart from this. But I, I am I the only one that kind of sees this is why, why is he, he's in? What I mean, if, if, I, I don't know. It, it strikes me as like, uh, yeah, really, really, really big uh, error. But I think it's interesting that he's saying he needs to be a better person. I mean, is is he all of a is he like really Catholic all of a sudden? Like what what is the what is the moral feeling that he's talking about? It's gross. It's dumb. I don't know. That's just how I see it. She's back, everybody. Our friend Ann Coulter, the best-selling author. Go to her website, AnnCoulter.com, for her latest column. Ms. Coulter, great to have you. Good to talk to you, Buck Sexton. So, and I've I've started to institute a rule, and that is that anyone who uh, either refers to our our sacred democracy or 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 engage the kind of sanctimony about the the threats to our democracy is is either an idiot or a liar at this point. I, I feel like because this is all I ever hear is how Republicans are a threat to democracy. It's this ominous sounding thing. And yet the people that keep saying it without ever explaining really how, like where you know what what's going? Why are we a threat to democracy? They're actually trying to undermine the process of democratic elections. <laughs> yes, well put. It's it's a um, specific example of of my larger principle. When the details help, 
liberals, you'll get them. When they do not help liberals, you will not get them. You'll get these platitudes about, oh, democracy, freedom, warm puppies. Um, no, you're totally right. And and this particular election bill, I may write about it again next week because I could just hit a couple of the highlights. Um, it has absolutely nothing to do with, with, with even getting more people to vote, much less um, making our elections fairer, cleaner. Um, no, it has to do with giving Democrats lots of ways to cheat. Um, they are specific to Democrats because what you have to remember is <laughs> Democrats are, are loaded up with a lot of unmotivated voters. Um, Republicans come out to vote. Uh, they, they're, they're paying attention to the news. They know what's going on in the world. That's why they're Republicans. Whereas Democrats tend to be more, or they have more, not all of them, obviously. Um, but they have a big chunk of, of voters who really have no idea what's going on, have no many idea how many senators there are, how many Supreme Court justices. They're told to vote a certain way, so they vote that way. Um, so to get them, you know, off their couches to vote on election day, is quite a problem for the Democratic Party. Um, yeah, what that's what are some of the rules. things, I mean, you mentioned and the specific bills here. There's H.R. 1, which is what I think we, we generally talk right. about the most, which they call the, the For the People Act, which is a perfectly <laughs> Orwellian, I mean, you know, this, this is really per, the For the People Act. What does that even mean? And then they, of course, have the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, H.R. 4, who could who could vote against against that other than an insurrectionist and an evil person? Obviously, these are named for very yes. specific political reasons. What would these bills do? Just so everyone knows why the Democrats are so obsessed with them. Well, H.R. 1 has all kinds of outrageous things in it. That is point by point by point, three of which I mentioned in my column. One is two weeks of early voting. Um, actually, I didn't even bother mentioning that. All mail-in voting. It would overrule the, the voting rules of all 50 states. Mail-in voting for, I think it's six months before an election. It is months before an election. No voter ID in order to request an absentee ballot. Um, no, um, anybody can turn it in. It doesn't have to be the person who requested the ballot. So, so you'll have lots of vote harvesting. You'll have these Democratic groups. Like I say, they have a lot of trouble getting their voters to vote. Well, what if we could vote for them? What if they don't have to show up on Election Day? Um, what if they don't have to do anything at all? <laughs> Maybe we could vote for them without them even knowing. But, okay, let's say they nod their consent. Um, or 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 the 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 liberal Soros funded activist has decided they aren't going to vote the right way. Oh, don't worry, I'll deliver this ballot for you, and then you know straight into the garbage. Um, it also one of the disturbing provisions in it that I think most people don't realize what it does. Um, Democrats, of course, don't care. Is this automatic voter registration? Um, if you can't get Democrats to vote getting them to go through just the incredibly complicated process of showing up and saying with a utility bill or something. And I'd like to, I'd like to register to vote. No, that's asking them way too much. They're going to be down by 40% of, of their voters if, if registering is required. So automatic voter registration, when you sign up for any state benefits um, or not benefits, anything with the state, when you sign up, if you're going to a public university, that automatically registers you to vote. 
even though you may not have moved to that state. Students at public universities will all be automatically registered to vote. Um, The big one, though, is getting a driver's license. And the reason I say it's a big one, um, the uh, Congress passed, and, and, and for good reason, um, back in 1994, the driver's license or driver's protection act, something like that, I have the full proper name, because, well, there was the famous case, but there were many cases of women being, of stalkers getting women's addresses through, through the voting rolls, um, actually through the, through the DMV back then. Um, and so the DMVs are no longer allowed to release people's private information. Um, that was how Rebecca Schaefer, an actress who was killed by a crazed stalker, that's how he got her address um, through the, the Department of Motor Vehicles. They used to just give it out, um, give out people's addresses. So DMVs can no longer do that. Motor vehicle departments can no longer do that. Voters registration have to be able to do that for purposes of electioneering. So the information you give to register to vote is, I mean, it varies slightly state to state. This is voting laws are usually controlled by the state. But by and large, the voting rolls are public. So so stalkers will now, it's, it's, you know, a a dream for them. They'll be able to get their... um, Get get their 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 victims' addresses if the victim has enrolled in a in in any public college, gotten a driver's license, um, gotten unemployment benefits. Well, and as um, we know, left the leftists stalkers. are psychos, and and they'll find they'll find you know re- they'll find people that go on TV and and support the Republican Party. They'll find Republican politicians and show up at their homes banging pots and pans at you know one o'clock in the morning right. and terrifying small children and think that they're like the equivalent of you know George Washington at Valley Forge or something. I mean, this is what they do. Right, <laughs> right, and not just. I mean, obviously, I think you know stalking and the threat of of rape, murder, and harassment is a pretty big deal. But they're also you know process servers can get your address, bill collectors, angry spouses. Um, but as long as it makes it as long as all of the Democrats are registered to vote and we don't have to actually ask them to do anything. Now, that's that's just a, a few of the provisions. There are many more specifically allowing ballot harvesting in H.R. one the for the people act. The John Lewis Act is far worse in 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 the classic democratic sneaky way of doing something and that is oh we're just extending the voting rights act and we'll give doj all this investigative power just looking for you know voting violations well um i refer you to (laughs) how unaccountable unelected bureaucracies enforce things like title nine um, you know, suddenly Mattress Girl, New Yorkers will remember, up at Columbia. Um, Emma Sokowitz, I believe, kid. yes. Yeah, yeah, can get, thank you, can get, accuse a guy who broke up with her, um, accused of rape, his name dragged through the mud, thrown off the campus, um, and then the checks come out, proving it's all nonsense. Those are rules set up. Congress wouldn't pass those rules. No, that's done by an unelected bureaucracy. This is what you are going to get under the John Lewis Act. Everything that is in H.R. 1 and worse, they will oversee um, all state voting rules. And if they say um, we consider this a suppression of the vote, not to allow 10 year olds to vote, 
um, states are going to have to give in because the federal government has an unlimited amount of money to pursue these cases. States have, have a limit. They can't keep running up deficits. They can't spend their entire income defending sane voting rules. So they'll, they'll agree to you a consent decree, and suddenly everything that is in H.R. 1, plus even worse things, will be the law in every state across and the this union. Is, and has this been the case? Well, has this been the case with the Voting Rights Act as it has been used in recent years in a lot of places where if if you want to you know, move a polling place across the street or something, the DOJ can swoop in and, oh, no, you can't do that. The, the, the micromanagement yes. under the Voting Rights Act has been crazy. And it's based on a formula that is out of date for where there was formerly some kind of, of voting discrimination and they don't really update the formula. Yes. Yes, that that has that's been gone now. Um, yeah, that was what was struck down by the Supreme like Court, fire. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. The Supreme Court said, no, um, this was 60 years ago. You got to stop doing this. Um, this would bring it roaring back. Now it's anything that DOJ considers a voting violation. Um, I mean, if, if you just read it and you don't realize how unaccountable bureaucrats behave, you'll think, oh, well, you, you know, there has to be some sort of. Um, suppression of the vote, a recent one in the past 20 years instead of the last 70 years. But you have to understand what the Department of Justice zealots will see as a voting violation will be things like not allowing felons to vote. One of my favorite things, Anne, that we've learned in recent years, and we're speaking to Ann Coulter. You should all go to AnnCoulter.com for her latest column, best-selling author. Of course, if you haven't read one of her books, you got to go get it. Uh, and that federal bureaucracies are really, without exception, a menace to public liberty and to to things yes. that we hold dear in our society. And I would just note my favorite moment this week. Well, actually, no, I've got two favorite moments I'll get to with you. But the first <laughs> one, I've got two great ones, is Anthony Fauci, not, not once, but twice, saying <laughs> an attack on Fauci is an attack on science. I'm like, see, this is what I've been saying all along. <laughs> Yes, that would be that would be a good one. <laughs> I'll grant you that one. Although I wasn't as freaked out by the emails as as other people were. I mean, two things in his defense. Um, even when this was a brand new vibe, um, I mean, obviously, it, this was sprung on the world. Nobody has seen this before. I mean, his private emails do have him saying, which is true. It's very easily transmissible, but it's not that deadly. Um, so lots of people will get it. Um, but 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 don't worry, the death rate is kind of low. At least he said that early on. Um, he was attacked for he kept having journalists and friends and colleagues email him and say, is Trump silencing you? Is he, do you have a gag order? And he kept assuring them, no, I am not being silenced at all. No one in the administration has put any gag on me. I can say whatever I want. So those are two points in his favor, though that interview yesterday, I suspect he might want to take that back. Yeah, yeah. An attack on Fauci's an attack on science is my favorite thing he has ever said or done, because I'm just I was just, you know, walking around doing backflips after that one. I was like, I told you, everybody, I told you. But there's one more and before we before we let you go. And that is I feel like this week was a reminder for everybody that Kamala Harris doesn't really have a constituency other than CNN anchors and the New York Times editorial page and, and maybe, you know, some Hollywood yeah. producers with big checkbooks. No one actually thinks 
She's impressive or good at things, and yet she keeps getting pushed along by the Democrat system. Yes. Yes. Well, you'll recall she had to drop out of the primary through lack of interest even before the end of 2019. Um, And, I mean, I just find this whole thing weird to watch, I will say. It doesn't upset me. It's just weird. Um, the, The idea that, oh, she's accomplished something that nobody else has accomplished. Well, no, Joe Biden set certain parameters for whom his vice president would be. Must be a woman, must be a woman of color. Now, go, give me the list. <laughs> there are like three elected politicians in the country who who fit that. I mean, unless he's going to go down to a school board member someplace, she was pretty much the only one who fit the bill. And we're supposed to say, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, someone getting into Harvard because his father, grandfather, great grandfather went there and donated billions of dollars. Whoa, that is so impressive. No, there were weird parameters set up that only you filled. I thought we That's were going to get through the whole interview without Ann taking a shot at Jared Kushner, but there, but there we are. <laughs> can't even, can't even get there on that one. No, I just, I mean, the fact that Kamala thinks that she could sit in an interview, Ann, and, and say, I've been to, we've been to the border. Like, kind of make it this general, we've been. No, she has not been. And even Lester Holt, <laughs> who is clearly a Democrat friendly, right, clearly aligned with like yeah. having a good interview with Kamala is like, look, lady, I mean, I can't we can't have this be crazy time. here. <laughs> yes. Yes. And remember, everybody, when you feel depressed about what's going on in the world, we get to run against her in three and a half years. Yes, we do. Ann Coulter, everybody. AnnCoulter.com. Go check out her column this week on the voting rights uh, issues and the Democrats being dishonest about it. Ms. Coulter, we'll talk to you soon. We're trying to get an outcome on infrastructure, something that is popular uh, on both sides of the aisle. All we're insisting on is that the infrastructure bill be about infrastructure and not a whole lot of other things, and that it be credibly paid for. And we're continuing to engage in discussions, members of mine, with each other across the aisle and with the administration. And we haven't given up hope that we'll be able to reach a a deal on something really important for the country that we really need to accomplish. And that is a major uh, infrastructure bill. And it'll have to be done on a bipartisan basis. An infrastructure bill may still happen, folks. That's what Mitch McConnell saying could still happen. So the GOP, remember, the right-wing extremists, the right-wing extremists, if you listen to Bernie Sanders, they're so extreme, they even will go along in a bipartisan fashion to spend more money on infrastructure. Uh, yeah, I think that this is, this is uh, something that may get done. What would shut it down? Well, Senator Markey says if they put climate provisions in there, play 11. My feeling is that we have to be big. We have to be bold. We have to respond uh, to what the American people voted for last year. And if the Republicans say no climate, then I say no deal. Let's just move on. Let's move to the next phase where uh, we work using the reconciliation process, as you said, which only needs 51 votes, all Democrats plus Kamala Harris, in order to pass something. Uh, We can't allow the procrastination, the the obstinate uh, obstructionism, which 
uh, the Republicans have engaged in in the past, 1994, 2010. We know what their strategy is. Uh, we've seen this movie before. Uh, we've given them enough time. If they come to the table and they're reasonable, let's sit with them. But I just don't think it's going to happen after what we've seen in the first five months of the Biden administration. They've got to be reasonable by allowing the Democrats to insert massive spending provisions with regard to their religious belief in climate change. That That's that's what's going to be considered reasonable. So if that is the case, I certainly hope that the Republicans do obstruct and not go along with this. But Democrats through reconciliation, there's there's measures they will try to take here to do even more spending. And remember, this is one of the things the Democrats always have an advantage in. They just pretend that there is an endless amount of money to be spent. And it's just the big, bad, mean Republicans who won't do that. Even the Republicans spend too much money as well. But an, infra- an infrastructure deal, I, I think this actually could end up happening, being something Republicans go along with. And I'd rather just have the hashtag resistance on our side, quite honestly. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. It's time for Roll Call. Well, this is our last roll call, friends, in the six to nine slot for Premier Radio Networks uh, across the country, six to nine Eastern. And I know that a lot of you listen in at different times because we're delayed some places or we, we were because we're not going to be in that time slot anymore at all. Um, it has been an amazing five years uh, to get to this point. I got to tell you, it's been pretty, pretty tremendous. I started with Premier, uh, Premier Radio Networks in February of 2016. <clears throat> and over the course of five years, we managed to almost double our affiliate list and bring the uh, overall listening of this show. We at least we at least tripled the audience of this show, uh, the overall sort of maximum audience reach might have been more like uh, four or five times. When you when you if you add podcasting into it, too. Um, but we we completely uh, changed this time slot uh, from what it had been previously. And uh, it worked out for us. I mean, we did very, very well. And I really appreciate that. So all of you who listened and made this a success. I want to take a moment to say thank you to producer Mark, who was with me for the last two years, which were our, honestly our most successful two years on the show. The most new affiliates, the most big uh big call letters for radio stations new ones joining us um and obviously the podcast also really really growing rapidly so producer mark i'm not going to clap for you because uh that would be weird over a microphone yeah clapping on radio sounds bad yeah exactly we just want to say thank you to you for making roll call more fun for making sure that i actually was almost on time for work most days and that uh, we showed up and did this show you've been a critical part of it and i know you're going to be working with Jesse on his new show coming up here uh, soon. But uh, the team is the team is going to miss you. But uh, you all haven't heard the last of producer Mark on the Buck Sexton show. That I can tell you. Well, uh, thank you, Buck, uh, for allowing me to uh, come on the air. Not a lot of show. Not a lot of hosts do. You have the ego to allow a producer on the air with you. Uh, So I appreciate that. I appreciate the audience for actually liking me. I don't know why you do. 
They um, really like you. Yeah, they do. I have no idea why. I'm not very I mean, personable. I think you should probably start producer Mark's. Uh, what, what what was the better thing than the penalty box? Because you could do a podcast. But remember, somebody came up with another. Oh yeah, I forgot what it was called. It was like the Mark slap shot or something. Yeah. I don't know. It was something that wasn't that didn't sound like we're being punished. But you know, you could do a producer Mark. Uh, you know, observations about life slash sports podcast. You would do a good sports. I've, just so you all know, I've been telling Mark this all along. He'd be he'd do a good sports podcast. Yeah, I would do a great podcast. I know that. It's just you know, it's hard to. You know, there's people like Buck Sexton out there. Who's going to listen to me? Well, but that's but you're doing a sports podcast. That's true. But there's a lot of sports podcasts. Just like yeah, but I think yours would be better than a lot of the sports podcasts. All right. Plus, I'm just going to put this out. I'm just going to put this out there. I got this friend. His name is Clay. Yeah. He has a very big sports website where they do a lot of sports stuff. Maybe there's something there, my friend. I mean, if uh, Outkick would like to hire me, I'm uh, more than willing to host a podcast for them, Buck. You know, that's a, that's a, that's an idea, right? So anyway, um, we uh, we appreciate producer Mark and uh, being with us here, joining us here, and we appreciate that he's been such a, a critical part of what we've been doing here. So thank you, producer Mark. And I do want to get to uh, we're going to do a, a, one of our longer roll call sessions now, so we'll get to a, a bunch of your messages. But I just want to say for everybody who wrote in about congratulations to the 12 to 3 move, um, thank you. I, I haven't responded to every single one. I, it was, it ended up being, I mean, I think it was hundreds, if not thousands, of messages uh, about just that one day's announcement. So I don't want any of you to think that you writing into me, if I don't um, respond or producer Mark doesn't respond on my behalf, we don't see it, we don't appreciate it. I do, I, I read it all. And it was really meaningful because just to give you a sense of, of what what I've been doing, I had um, I was doing at my peak in 2020, I was doing what what's the equivalent now. Now, when you do like a radio hour, for example, because there are commercial breaks, when I say I did an hour of radio, you've actually done about something like 40 to 45 minutes, maybe of talking around there, something like that. Um, so just to be clear, I'm not saying that I, I filled every minute on these clocks, but at my peak in 2020, I was doing the equivalent of six hours of solo performance a day between TV and radio, six hours. I'm serious. Six, which is completely insane. Uh, so I will say the one thing, because there have been a few people, you know, who are a little, um, less than, uh, a little, a little less than charitable or generous about the fact that I will now be hosting the largest audience, a co-hosting the largest audience radio show in the country in two, starting in two weeks, which is pretty cool to say out loud. But in terms of that time slot and the affiliate list will have, um, I think it will be the largest radio show in the country. And there may be one, uh, one or two other shows that could make that claim, but whatever, we're in the top three, uh, certainly. And, you know, it's, it's going to be number one or number two, I think in terms of audience reach every day. Not everybody was uh, in the radio business. There are a lot of hosts, a lot of egos. I so much appreciate the people who were gracious and kind about it publicly and privately. A lot of people reached out to me. But there are some who were not exactly, let's say, thrilled about it. Uh, but I will say this. Anybody who knows what I've done to get here knows that this is actually, I don't say stuff like this. No one has worked harder, longer hours in Five years in the last five years on radio specifically 
They might have worked as hard and as many hours. No one has done more. You know, no one has done more. That I can tell you. They, I'm not saying no one has worked as hard. I'm sure there are people who probably worked as hard. But, I mean, six hours a day of solo performance last year. Producer Mark, I almost lost my mind. Yeah, and you refused to take a day off. I think it was last summer. I was like, can you just take a week off? You refused. Yeah. No, I just kept pushing through and pushing through and pushing through. So it was, It has been uh, quite a quite a marathon to get to this point. And next, that's why I'm taking next week. I still have a lot of things I have to do next week for work and I got meetings and I'm going to be you'll see me on outnumbered on Fox next Thursday. At least that's what I'm scheduled to do. Uh, I'm going to be joining a big, uh, big podcast as a guest next week. That'll be kind of a surprise, but uh, you'll be hearing that one. So I've got a bunch of things I got to do next week and I'm going to be doing my TV show at the first every day. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm taking off from doing radio um, where I mean, I've even done. I mean, it's it's crazy. I just I can't even tell you how many days I've gotten through the day and basically crumbled into a ball on the couch and just been like, I, I can't even move. That's how that's how much I've been uh, trying to just make the best content I can, particularly during the pandemic. I mean, I'll say it wasn't I wasn't working these crazy hours. So when I said the last five years, OK, maybe that's maybe it's really the last two years, actually with producer Mark. But I have gone. I have gone to the mat, and this is not to say, oh, look at me, I've gone to the mat. Why was that even possible? Why was I willing to do that? Why was it worth it for me to do that? Because of the people who listen to this show. Because you supported the show. Because you were there with me. You were willing to try products from our great sponsors, so they stayed with us because you actually use my promo codes and go to these websites because you download my podcast, because you tell people about it. Well, you think I would have basically sacrificed having a normal life for the last two years if this show wasn't growing so rapidly and doing so well? I mean, no, it would have been worth it. So it's all it's you. It's because you made it possible for me to do that. And by the way, I have no regrets about it, uh, about spending that kind of time on this show. I'm just merely trying to point out that it has been quite a quite a ride. Um, and now we're we're going on to the next level. We're going on to the next next point in time here. And uh, we just couldn't be more excited about it. Um, I'm, you know, I, here I am. I've been doing radio for basically 10 years. And like I said, the number one or number two biggest radio show in the country by, by affiliate audience reach. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. Um, so it's because so many of you listen. And those of you, and I appreciate this. There are people who have been saying, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get there. You know, you're going to get there. You're going to take that 12 to 3 slot when it opens up. Some of you have been saying that for many years, for years now. So I think that also, that you deserve a lot of credit for seeing in me an ability that has now been able to get a, get a real opportunity. So people say things like, oh, I'm so humbled by it, and they don't mean it. I think if you listen to the show, you know, I actually am humbled by it. I'm kind of amazed that we are where we are and that this is going to be happening. Uh, and it's because all of you listened and gave me a shot and stayed with me. And I know you have so many, there's so many options out there, different shows to listen to. And, you know, I, I look, I, I appreciate that you give me your time and that you get value out of it. And that's why I go completely crazy with, you know, prep and sending Mark emails at two o'clock in the morning with, we got to do this segment tomorrow. And I don't make him respond to them right then. Don't worry. But, you know, he sees them. I'm sending things. I have a random thought. I text it to him. I have a, 
you know, we're just always sending emails out about what about this guest or what about this this uh, soundbite I just heard. We got to have this on the show tomorrow. That's been my life for years now. Just a con. People ask, well, why haven't you written a book? I get that sometimes. I I mean, I've had I have no time to do these things. Um, I have no time, no more time than I'm already spending on content. There's like no there's no fat on the meat, so to speak. Well, I meant that as a metaphor, unfortunately, because of the cookies during the pandemic. I still need to slim down a little bit. But uh, thank you all very much for listening and for making this show a success to the point where now, as you know, we're going to move from uh, from six to nine to twelve to three. And this was the dream. I mean, this was the whole this was the goal, honestly. I never talked about it before because honestly, there was a part of me that always believed that is this even really something that can happen? I mean, could I ever really get a big shot on radio? I mean, the syndicated show, just you know, the six to nine show, you know, people get into, oh, what shows are the biggest and everything. And it's tough to know. And a lot of this is based on um, estimates by the by Nielsen, which is the radio, the company that does radio ratings like like TV ratings, too. Uh, but. The syndicated show was a big radio show, six to nine. So we've been doing now, and, and as I said, in the last two years, it's grown more than ever before. But even over the last five years, we've been steadily growing and growing the six to nine slot for Premier Networks. Um, there were some uh, you know roadblocks you'd run into here and there, and some folks weren't, weren't necessarily happy that I was in the six to nine time slot uh, and made that, made that known publicly. But uh, the audience that listened to the show made it known that, no, this guy actually earns it every day by doing a really good show, and it's worth our time, and he gets it. So thank you to all of you. I'm just This is me now as a radio host rambling about how awesome all of you are and all of your notes and your uh, text messages and your, your DMs and you know, Facebook and you know, emails, everything, all the stuff you send in with your thoughts, with your encouragement, with your support. It's why... Uh, we're in this place now and why I'm telling you that we got a, a week of downtime for me. Remember, there's going to be the Buck Sexton Show podcast uh, and, and radio show next week, but it'll be guest hosts. So you'll have a week of guest hosts. And then June 21st, we launch with the Clay, Travis and Buck Sexton show. And we are going to we're going to do a great a great program. I mean, you're really I think you're really going to enjoy it. I really do. I just had dinner with Clay last night. And we had so much fun and we talked about movies and we talked about history. We talk about politics. He teaches me about sports because, <laughs> you know, producer Mark, that's necessary. So, yeah, um, I, I, I was able to, to steal some of your producer Mark uh, observation about how the Nets are doing really well in basketball, but somehow New York doesn't care. So wow. thank you. I've, you know, your, your knowledge was used in conversation. So I look like I wasn't completely ignorant of the sports world does clay know that you just know nothing about sports oh yeah yeah no i've had to tell him that, that how does I don't, he feel about that that i haven't watched i mean i think he thinks it's fine because he knows a ton about sports and so whenever there's a sports story we want to do he's got it covered that's true you're well balanced yeah. and i'll sit there and i'll be like yes i love the tampa bay grizzly alligator lions whatever you know you, you could have just said buccaneers like you know the name of the team yeah, but you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. So, folks, I, this is just me saying to all of you, and I, I'm not trying to get all emotional here on the show, but it's kind of starting to happen. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for giving me a shot uh, all this time. Um, it's a, the whole thing is kind of overwhelming that we're going to have such a big show in a couple of weeks. And it's just because of the people that 
when they're on their radio dial or they're downloading podcasts or you know however you listen you're on the iHeart app you're like I like this Buckeye I'm going to give him, I'm going to listen to him that's it changed my life so basically I love all of you and I appreciate all of you so thank you all right now some actual roll call our last one in the six to nine slot remember guest hosts in the Buck Saxon show next week June 21st we launch. 12 to 3, coast to coast, about 400 stations, give or take. It's going to be awesome. Make sure you tune in. I need, By the way, I need all of you listening to the new show. So just remember, I need all of you tuning in to the new show. Don't, don't think that our work here is done, friend. Not even close. I need all of you listening in 12 to 3. And if you can't for some reason at that time, I need you to listen to the podcast. And the Buck Sexton Show podcast, which is going to be short, about 40 minutes every day. So it'll be a shorter podcast. That'll be going on, too. So there'll be the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show podcast and the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Andre, Buck, when you do your out-of-control Elizabeth Warren impression, if it happened to morph into a chicken, that would be great. Andre, I appreciate I don't really get it, but I appreciate you writing in. Thank you. Grant, congratulations on your latest move. I can't claim to be OSS. I first heard you when you subbed for Rush and have listened ever since. I'm a podcast listener, by the way, because I work night shift. So nothing else is on during my commute. Regardless, I saw those guys before they were famous. My old boss used to see Aerosmith weekends when he was growing up in Rhode Island. I saw Guns N' Roses open up for Motley Crue and Pearl Jam and Smashing Pumpkins open up for Red Hot Chili Peppers. One last thing, John Cena's Mandarin's pretty good. I studied Mandarin at the Defense Language Institute and lived in China for a year teaching English. Most Chinese TV programs are subtitled with characters because there are so many dialects. Shields high and always out front, the motto of Army Intelligence. Thank you so much, Grant. Appreciate your writing and thank you for listening. Buck, it is always so interesting to hear you talk about the true history of the past, whether it is a critique of the historical accuracy of Braveheart, all-time fave next to Dances with Wolves, or your incredibly keen five-minute recaps of the event to animate any event historically, or your spot-on opinions about what's really happening in this strange time. I've been, a pri- I've been privileged to be a member of Team Buck since Real News. Catherine... Honored to have you as part of Team Buck. Thank you so much. Um, John, Saul, John, the next three on my list here. Thank you for writing in. You're saying congratulations, Buck. Congratulations. John, I'm a daily podcast listener. There's no doubt that being able to help you, uh, being able to listen to you, helped me through the craziest of times. I'm thrilled about your new time slot. Anyway, I wish I could read the hundreds of other messages we could pull, guys, but we're at time. Big hug for all of you. June 21st, new show launches. Shields high.